Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to give you a new way to get in touch with us. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. Send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts on our shows, any ideas you might have for guests, or anything else you want to share with us. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let us know what you're thinking. Podcast at lincolnproject.us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Bree Galen. Today, I'm joined by John Avla, senior political analyst and anchor at CNN. He is an award-winning columnist and is the author of numerous books, including his latest work, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. You can find it at your finest local bookstore. Previously, John was the editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast and served as chief speechwriter for the mayor of New York during the attacks of 9-11. John has a BA from Yale University and an MBA from Columbia, John's wife and I also go back a long way. I can tell you that I look like I do now and have a face for radio, and Margaret looks exactly as she did many years ago and has a face for television. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Reed. Good to talk to you, too. So, you wrote your latest book, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, which is, I think, a great review. As I was telling you before, it's hard, I think, especially for historical books, to thread that needle of being interesting from a historical perspective but approachable for someone who doesn't spend as much time surrounded by history books like I do. And so I think, you know, that's not an easy needle to thread. Well, thank you. I'm a deep history nerd, and I always find it disappointing when stories just kind of regurgitate the same dozen or so anecdotes. So I try to do more than that to give a little sense of the character of the person and the time and the texture. One of the things we're all engaged in is trying to make the old stories new again. And I'm a big believer in applied history, which means basically just useful wisdom. And I think the lessons of Lincoln's leadership, the lessons of Lincoln's time are so applicable for a number of different reasons, one of which it's a reminder of we've been through far worse before. It's a reminder of the, I think, moral obligation to appeal to our better angels. But the story that I wanted to tell was Lincoln's plan for winning the peace after winning the war and his vision of national reconciliation and reunification. And because Lincoln is assassinated five days after Appomattox, he never got to implement his plan for winning the peace. And so as a result, after consulting with a number of Lincoln scholars and, and other folks, found myself happily with the subject of Lincoln the peacemaker, which had not been done before. And I was able to collect all his statements and wishes and visions and really in the last six weeks of his life and his actions to develop what I hope is a portrait of a peacemaker. Well, and I thought that was something interesting to bounce a little bit back and forth through history was war has been for, I guess, most of human history, a, a constant one way or the other. But I thought it was interesting that Lincoln, even in the depths of the Civil War, knew that he had to look beyond whenever the South capitulated. You reference people like Woodrow Wilson and Harry Truman as well. I think you could probably say that FDR would be on that list, too, that FDR, like Lincoln, never got to see the post-war world. 
he helped create. But that's something that a lot of folks I don't think spend enough time on. It's like, okay, we win the military part of this, the notable exception of the current day. But oftentimes, taking out a bunch of tanks or capturing a bunch of territory is the first part and the shortest part. But the peace is the harder part and the one that stretches on not just months or years, but sometimes generations. That's right. And the two are fundamentally connected. And that was Lincoln's, I think, key essential strategic insight is that if you don't win the peace, you don't really win the war. And it's important to understand that there'd never been a civil war on that scale before in human history. And so Lincoln didn't have any precedents or people to look towards, which I think makes his achievement even more compelling. But he understood and was planning, even as the war raged on, for national reconciliation, reunification. He was doing it as a matter of policy. It was an expression of his own personality with this unbelievable magnanimity that defined him but that he was thinking beyond the pain of the present, which is what reconciling leadership requires. You need to look past the cause and effect and the reactivity and the normal human desire for revenge if you are going to chart a path towards a horizon of reconciliation. Thinking about that, I mean, you do reference, I think, several times the duality of Lincoln was that he was moderate in many, many ways, but determined that he was willing to play the transactional game for the transformational event. He knew that war was the worst thing, but he also knew it was the only thing, however awful, that would save the Union. When he started, he did not believe that slavery should spread. And by the end, he was looking for ways to not only make sure that slavery never returned, but that freed blacks had all of the same opportunities that the whites that had enslaved them had. And you say, and Lincoln evolved which I think is for the time we live in now, John, where any evolution on an issue is seen as either weakness, pandering, or you know, a betrayal of some previously held belief. He seemed to embody all of this in a guy who, if you looked at him, wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> well, that's right. Evolution is the opposite of weakness. It's a sign of wisdom and strength. And so, too, for those of us who are in the center, Lincoln's core attributes are he is a temperamentally moderate man, but he balances his moderation with real moral courage. It's a reminder that the essential quality in a president, and history bears this out time and again, is character and the ability to grow. Lincoln, when he's elected president, is leading an upstart third party the Republican Party, it's a big tent party that combines abolitionists with people who just want to oppose slavery's expansion. He has no executive experience, no military experience, but he has character. He has one term in the U.S. House of Representatives to his name. That's it. But he's got character. He's got the capacity to grow. And he has a personality that is rooted in empathy and honesty and humor and humility. And from those qualities of his personality grow his principles and his politics and his policies. And he does combine opposites. And so he's able to transcend the tribalism and the dualities that are dominating American life in a way that makes him an enduring and endearing leader. But the whole stereotype against the center is, I think, blown apart by Lincoln's transformational example. I mean, he is a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries. He is not ideological. He is practical, but he is deeply principled. And while he believes that decency can be the most practical form of politics, he also understands that people are more willing to listen to reason when they're greeted from a position of strength. There is no substitute for winning on the battlefield, political or real. And the people who are pressuring him for peace at any cost, 
he understands that would be a counterfeit victory because unless you remove the root cause of the war, it's just going to reignite and all the loss would be for nothing. So a couple of years ago, we got invited to go speak at the Cooper Union on the 160th anniversary of his speech there and to speak from the lectern from which Lincoln spoke, which is pretty heady, especially if you're a nerd like I am. And in that, I thought that, you know, you read the reviews of that speech and you talked about it here, too, in some of his remarks that every word was chosen carefully, but he always got off to sort of a slow start. You had to hang on right for about the first 10 minutes. But once he got going, it was this torrent of very short words, using words that the common man could understand, but without talking down to him. And that is harder, just like they say comedy is harder than drama. Being simple but profound is a hugely difficult thing to pull off. And yet Lincoln understood that was the key to effective communication. You know, he spoke in stories. He spoke in parables. I mean, he learned it from everything from Aesop to Jesus. Keeping in mind that he's a self-educated man without a formal education, but his experience as a lawyer also teaches him the virtue of mediation and just being able to communicate in a way that folks can understand. The way he deploys humor to disarm his opponents, the way he refuses to demonize people he disagrees with, the way he uses empathy as a means of reasoning with people, the way he's determined to connect with the head and the heart because he knows that one is not sufficient. And the way he thinks strategically and that he is a politician in the best sense, all those combined to make him such an incredibly effective communicator, despite the fact that he is awkward and ungainly and Western. You know, one thing I kept finding was a shocking number of people when they meet Lincoln describe him in their letters and diaries as the ugliest man they've ever met. But what they say is when he starts to speak or tell a story. A sort of beauty came out of him. It was his soul shining through his eyes and his countenance changed and he became engaging and magnetic. And one of the things that left such a powerful impression on people and that I think is one of Lincoln's many gifts to us today is that he reminded us that kindness can be consistent with effective leadership. And I don't think that's a lesson we can learn enough now. I always find that the more I read, and maybe it's just the mindset I'm in, the more I find things that go, oh, that's what I was trying to figure out. And there was a lot of that in here, the way I was thinking about that today when you talked about reconciliation, because we've been asked by many folks like, what is this going to look like when it's all over? This being our current political polarization, the ugliness, the fact that, you know, Republicans and Democrats don't see each other as Americans. And I think that word that you provided helped me figure that out. Like, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think ultimately it will be reconciliation because without it. We're going to see what Lincoln was so afraid of, you know, in the wake of his 1860 election and obviously when the war started in 1861. But I want to talk about this, too, because I referenced his Cooper Union speech in which, you know, his famous is, you know, may God grant us the will to know that right makes might. But the South, even the founding fathers, I should say the slave owning founding fathers and those that didn't knew that slavery couldn't be a long term institution in the United States, that at some point it was going to have to leave. And that as an issue, many Southern slaveholders and politicians knew that it wasn't a longstanding thing, that it couldn't last for very long, especially as other countries, England and elsewhere, started to prohibit it. But it became the political touchstone and it became this states' rights issue, right? It became liberty that we hear so much about now. So give us a little sense of, as Lincoln's coming up, how that transformation occurs in the South from one where it's an economic system to it becomes the cornerstone of a political argument in which 
I think you said something like 160,000 people own slaves out of 13 million people in the area. I mean, that's a pretty crazy number that I don't think most people know. And that's why I put it in there. I mean, Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And so, as you say, one of the reasons we need to study our history is to look for lessons and also to hear the echoes of arguments that have led us to bad places in the past. In the case of the slave owners of the South, you see very early on, they are elites posing as populists. They are trying to rig the system. They are deathly afraid of majoritarian democracy, let alone multiracial democracy, which is outside of their comprehension. They try to use a tactic called aggressive defensiveness, which is to threaten people who even raise the question of ending slavery and then have someone else say, see, you know, you can't provoke these people into violence, therefore do nothing. It will be safer. They invoke and misuse the words liberty and patriotism to defend their own cause of secession and slavery. They are, at the end of the day, deathly afraid of demographic change. Right. Something, again, that, as Twain would say, is rhyming up to this moment. Yes, exactly. And so they rig the rules of Congress to have disproportionate power. And the elites would never have put secession up to a popular vote in most states because it would have lost. They did it in these closed partisan conventions. And once the violence starts, that's where the remorseless logic of polarization starts to really take hold and push people into their tribal camps in a spirit of revenge, which is what Lincoln had been desperately hoping he could avoid. He always holds out hope that the vast majority of Southerners contain some slumbering unionist sentiment, even though he knows they've been, he says, drugged by these powerful forces who are effectively you know, conservative populists of their time. They are Democrats. They're Southern Democrats. And so there's enormous amount of continuity in the crises that led up to their time, at least in terms of this identity politics, the tribal politics, and this misuse of the phrases liberty and patriotism. I want to read just a quick passage here based on that. And it said, Lincoln had always been frustrated by this counterfeit use of language and earlier sketched out a fable to prove his point. He said, quote, the shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty. Now, like, I thought that was fabulous. And of course, because he wrote it, like, we shouldn't be surprised it was fabulous, but like it was if you believed in masks, you were trying to free people from a pandemic. And other people said, you're making me wear a mask, you're infringing upon my liberty, right? And so this is a word that has profound meaning and profound history, but it's almost two-dimensional. People take of it what they want, and whatever's inconvenient, they sort of leave behind. Yes, but that does not crucially mean that there is no definition of liberty that we can actually judge who is using the words and the principles correctly and who's just using them to mask their own self-interest. And that's what Lincoln calls the wolf's dictionary. He says the wolf's dictionary has been repudiated. And we need to remember that, you know, everyone thinks in America they're fighting for freedom. That doesn't mean that everyone actually is. And so you need to call people out when they use these counterfeit words or try to twist them to confuse people. It may feel good, but it doesn't change reality. And we need to be unyielding in that insistence. And that's what Lincoln did. And he said it again in the second inaugural. He said, there's no question. Let's stop with all this nonsense about all these other supposed, you know, this war is about constitutional liberty or states' rights. No, it's about slavery. 
But then Lincoln does something profound. He refuses to get into the us versus them of it. He insists that it's a collective responsibility. And he calls us to the better angels of our nature with malice toward none, with charity for all, to create a just and a lasting peace. And that's reconciliation. So much of what I think we admire, I admire Lincoln for, is that he was moral. He had a set of morals that he was driven by. And they were, in my mind anyway, pretty clear. But now morality is sort of whatever you make of it. And this goes back to your thing about liberty. Now anything can be anything if you just say it enough or say it loud enough and get enough people to believe you. But Lincoln didn't often speak loudly, but he spoke clearly and with always a moral purpose in mind. Was he unique in that regard? Are there others in your research or your experience who've been able to do that? Because again, remember, this is a guy who knew that as he took office, like half the country was going to try and leave. And he understood that, but wasn't going to change his morality because of it. He wasn't going to try and reason with them about it. So there's a lot there. One of the things the Civil War is about, as Lincoln pointed out, is that there can be no appeal from the ballot to the bullet. It's a war about the integrity of democracy. It's a war about liberty. Four million enslaved Africans' lives heading in the balance. All the autocrats and aristocrats in Europe were expecting democracy to fail. They'd been predicting it from the beginning, and they were waiting for that evidence to come in so they could recarve up the union. And then also there's the dimension of trying to ensure that the next war does not ignite on the ashes of the past because civil wars require something more than pounding your opponents into submission and salting the fields. Lincoln is unique in many respects. The second inaugural I spoke of is largely an Old Testament speech until the last paragraph where he moves to what I call New Testament leadership. But it's important to remember his example because it was rare. You know, we sometimes idealize the past or we oversimplify the past or we demonize the past. And it's important to remember, we've been through worse as a nation. We got through it. Lincoln is our greatest president by general consensus, but he's bookended by two of our worst, Buchanan and Johnson. And it's not that we're going to find another Lincoln or a hopeless if we don't, but finding individuals of a similar spirit is important. And, you know, to your point, the epigraph of the book I use, the quote at the front of the book is from this pretty obscure speech Lincoln gives the night he wins re-election, which is when everything finally sets in motion. He thinks he's going to lose. And he knows that, you know, if you don't win on the battlefield, political or real, none of it matters. Doesn't matter if you're right. But this quote is so profound because it gets to the, the nature of human frailty and trying to see our current events with a sense of perspective and trying to understand the past without putting people on pedestals and oversimplifying. Here's what he said. Human nature will not change. In any future great national trial, compared with men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. Let us therefore study the incidents of this as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them as wrongs to be revenged. That's the essence of using applied history to steer toward reconciliation. We can't understand our history or current events as wrongs to be revenged. We need to try to understand them as philosophy to learn wisdom with, that shared history. And think about what he's saying there. He's viewing the present with a sense of historic perspective as well. And there's something extraordinarily elevating and leveling about that. But I want to ask you this because the one man theory or one person theory of history, because you wrote an excellent book about George Washington too, as George Washington was leaving office after eight years, 
which no one could believe he would do, right? Go back to Hamilton, right? Like the king is like, I can't believe he's leaving. Were we blessed? Was it the happenstance of place and time where you would have two people like Washington and Lincoln 80 years apart that were there to do these things and had such ingrained wisdom in them? Because so much, if you read Washington's Farewell, there's so much in there that applies today, just as if you read your book and you read about Lincoln, so much about his wisdom and actions applies to today as well. Obviously, that's what drew me to write both books. Regarding the great man theory of history, first of all, it's clear leadership matters. You know, tone comes from the top of any organization. That does not mean we are doomed in the absence of some figure who seems carved out of Mount Rushmore because the folks on Mount Rushmore seemed enormously flawed and very human in their own times. They had people who hated them. You know, with regard to the founders, it's an interesting question because we often hear, well, you know, look at the genius from these founders. And it's not just Washington and Jefferson and Adams. It's Hamilton. It's Jay. It's Madison. It's all of them. I do think there's something to be said for movements and moments that elevate everybody's game. You know, to use a really dumb pop culture version, I mean, the way that the Stones and the Beatles and the Beach Boys with pet sounds, they all elevate each other's game a bit. So I do think there's something about a confluence of talented people in a transitional time can encourage each other to be their best and level everybody up. That also is to say, we need to do that in our own times. The reason we study history, we got to take these folks off the pedestal and look at them eye to eye and make their wisdom more accessible and challenge ourselves to live up to the best of their example without ever pretending they were perfect because they weren't. But our democracy is just as much in the balance. It's less hanging in the balance than it was during the Civil War, thank God. But the future is never predetermined. And we all have a responsibility to defend our democracy, our democratic republic. It takes every generation to draw on the wisdom of the past, apply it to the present, to point a direction to a better future. And that's on us today. And so it's not one great man. It is about a broader movement of people who can encourage each other. And I would submit that those folks who try to operate in the center from a principled position, who balance moderation with moral courage without believing themselves to be morally superior, can form the most enduring coalitions and move us towards a sustainable progress rather than overreach and backlash that dynamic we see too much, the feedback loop between extremes. And that's part of what looking at Lincoln and Washington's leadership reminds us. Our best leaders are not the most extreme and ideological. Never. So... Lincoln is assassinated shortly after his second inaugural. He's laid out his plans. He's fighting with Congress about reconciliation. A couple of things interesting was he wanted no sanction for individual Southerners, but the leaders weren't going to get away with it. They didn't get a pass on what they'd done, which I thought was interesting. And again, Twain pops up here. But and this is going to be a very hard question, and I'm sorry for asking. How much different would it have been if John Wilkes Booth had missed. Well, as you say, it's not only difficult, it's impossible. And I try not to do what ifs, but you can clearly see that that's a hinge of history where a violent, evil action takes us on a trajectory that would have been totally different. You know, that's one of the reasons we see assassinations. People are trying to bend history to their will and the ramifications. They're never more severe than we saw there, where slavery is replaced with a century of segregation. And the difference between Lincoln and Andrew Johnson is rooted in their character, but expressed in totally different politics and policies. Well, Johnson showed up drunk for his inauguration. 
Yeah, just so. just for one. But you know, the Atlantic describes it at the time as egotistic to the point of mental disease, vain and intemperate, thin-skinned and resentful. So yeah, who does that remind you of? I think that the key is that, as you say, and about the applicability of today, Lincoln drew a distinction between the rank-and-file Southerners who he felt had been misled, who he wants to insist his generals have the most, quote, liberal and honorable terms. Let them keep their guns to shoot crows with and their horses to plow their fields with. But he's not going to show the same amnesty to the Confederate leadership class who should have known better, members of Congress, the courts, the military, who left the Union to join the rebellion. He's not going to let them claw their way back to power, which is what Andrew Johnson does. I mean, the black codes get reimposed by Confederate generals in positions of power months after Appomattox, which is just slavery without the chains. And Lincoln, on the other end of the extreme, though, he didn't want to execute leading Confederates, even Jefferson Davis. Why? He didn't want to make martyrs out of them. He wanted them to escape out of the country unbeknownst to him, a source of shame and ridicule, but not making martyrs. So you see, again, this centrist path in terms of being merciful to the rank and file, insisting on accountability, but not being so extreme as to make martyrs. And I think to the extent it applies today, and I will say, and you, you guys have written about this and spoken about this, and so have I, you know, the Civil War generation left us tools, pieces of legislation to use against future insurrections from the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which bars insurrectionists from holding federal office to federal criminal statutes and the seditious conspiracy and on and on to the Anti-KKK Enforcement Act that Ulysses S. Grant used with a Southern Attorney General to break the back of the first incarnation of the KKK. We should use those. But then we also need to find a way to reach out and realign the rank and file. And Andrew Johnson got it perfectly wrong. I was thinking about this in this sort of then and now, which is you had Lincoln was a transformative president, followed by four years of a disastrous president. And then Grant comes in and starts to do the things that Lincoln would have. What he was willing to do to try and bring the Lincoln-esque type of things to the United States writ large, I don't think get written about enough. But, you know, we had a transformational president in a Barack Obama for different reasons and at a different time, vastly different time, then followed by someone who spent four years just ripping as much circuitry out of the place as he possibly could. Now we have someone in the form of Joe Biden, who is trying to replace those things. And at his State of the Union, went out of his way to say, we are not enemies. And so it's just a weird parallel of history that you would have these two things. And then you would have these just complete disasters as presidents who would do so much damage in one term and then have someone who's there who's got to clean it up while the maelstrom is maybe cooling but hasn't burned out yet. I think that's right. But as you say, it's an imperfect parallel, but it does speak to the pendulum swing of American politics and our obligation to try to slow the swing between the extremes. I mean, Barack Obama was an extreme president. I can make the case he's basically an Eisenhower Republican in terms of his policies. I think a lot of people in his own party would now, too. <laughs> yeah, explicitly. I mean, you know, but Biden's a reminder, again, of that cardinal rule that character is the most important quality in a president. And he does reach out and he doesn't get credit for it. And that's OK, because Lincoln and Washington were widely hated by a vocal minority of people in their own time as well. And that's an important reason to remember that. And one of the things that Lincoln does that I think is so powerful in terms of the stories is, you know, he tours at the end of his time in the last six weeks of his life. He spends over two weeks behind enemy lines or at the front lines, rather, at City Point, Virginia. 
And at one point, he tours the Depot Field Hospital. It's the biggest hospital in the country at the time. And he is touring the lines and meeting wounded Union soldiers and speaking with them and asking their names and hearing their stories and is enormously emotionally affected. He hates war. And then he's getting ready to leave and he sees a tent out back and a doctor who's touring him around. He says, what's that? And the doctor is touring with him, kind of a stiff guy, says, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Those are just wounded rebel soldiers. And Lincoln says, that's exactly where I do want to go. And he goes and he introduces himself and he does the same thing and treats them the same way. And what you see is the soldiers decades later are so deeply affected by it because they remember the man's kindness. And they realize, many of them break down, they were fighting for a lie. They had been told that Lincoln was some kind of demon, a tyrant, a butcher, King Africanus I. They realized they'd been fighting for a lie and that he was a kind and decent man. These pendulum swings happen. It's why we have to learn from our politics. And when you understand the irrational reaction of Barack Obama, you need to understand it with the lens of history. When you understand the role that race has played in our politics and this demographic panic, it is just such a core wound that people respond to it in similar ways, even semi-consciously. It's the lizard brain taking over. And so when you see this demonization of the other, these racist tropes, the voter suppression, the voter intimidation, the election subversion, you know, we need to take it seriously because we have the benefit of history, because we're constantly struggling to move towards a more perfect union, something we never get to. One of which those goals has always been a majoritarian multiracial democracy. It's difficult. But that's part of the mission of the United States. One of the greatest things about the United States is if you go to Italy, it's full of Italians. And you go to France, it's full of the French. And you go to the Netherlands, it's full of the Dutch. You go to Poland, it's full of the Poles. But you come to America, it's full of Americans. It's not the same thing, right? It sort of assumes that it is a diverse melting pot, if we want to use an old word. Even when that diversity was, let's say, ethnic or religious rather than racial. That's precisely right. And people often underestimate that. We create this sort of myth of a white monolith without even paying attention to the way that the definition of white has changed over time. And that's another reason to appreciate our history. But America is the only nation in the world founded on, on an idea, not a tribal identity. And that's why our patriotism is different than mere nationalism. And why Lincoln felt this sense of mission to save the United States because he was fighting for something more than ourselves. It was for a vast future also. He called us God's almost chosen people. And I love that almost. It does so much work. But there is that sense that America is absolutely worth the fighting for precisely because of that. And when people try to impose tribal identities or litmus tests on America, that's where things fall apart. So we have an obligation to transcend our tribalism, to go beyond the dualities that are used to divide us because they're ultimately illusory. And that's part of what the promise of America represents to ourselves and around the world. But to that end, though, how do we rise above that when we see that the country is so divided, not just along two lines, but along multiple lines? And the way that we operate is not the way Lincoln had to, which is an actual battle, but on a political battlefield, as you noted. And from my perspective anyway, the right side, and I will say there is a right side, has to be victorious. And I don't put an R or a D behind that, but the people and leaders willing to be part of a multiracial, diverse democracy, healthy democracy, free and fair democracy, have to defeat those who would destroy that at the ballot box. Lincoln hated war, but he was absolutely willing to fight. And I feel like sometimes there's a lot of folks who know better, but the will to fight is latent or it's sleepy. Yeah. And that gets back to like, you know, 
the great WBH poem, The Second Coming, where you know, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's always been the challenge of the center. But that's exactly why we need to sort of stiffen our spine and build a real movement to defend our democracy that is the biggest possible tent. This is the existential test of our times. And, you know, Grant said in 1875, a decade after Appomattox, and I checked this quote three times because it almost is too on the nose to be believable. He said, if we are to have a second civil war, the dividing line won't be Mason and Dixon's. It will be between superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the one hand, or patriotism and intelligence on the other. And we need to be able to look at that without a feeling of moral superiority, but rather kind of moral courage to move forward. There were peace protesters in Lincoln time who wanted peace at any price, even the perpetuation of slavery and the partition of the Union, anything to stop the fighting and the killing. And Lincoln said, look, I want this peace more than anyone. But I'm unwilling to settle on a peace that would only guarantee that the war would erupt at a later date. You need to deal with the root cause. In our time, it is the drug of hyperpartisanship and polarization and tribal identity combined with disinformation and misinformation. And so we do need to fight to ensure that this multiracial vision of American democracy comes to fruition in a spirit of universal freedom as Lincoln described the mission of the United States. And we need to understand the levers that are necessary. It's part of an screwed up incentive structure in our politics. But as we go into that, we need to remember that we are not a 50-50 nation. We are not evenly divided. We are not even divided red state, blue state. There are urban versus rural divisions. There are economic divisions. There are racial divisions. There are God knows partisan divisions. We need to be trying to bridge those divisions without pulling a punch when it comes to dealing with the underlying root cause. We need to bridge our divisions by adjusting the incentive structure in our politics to have a truly representative democracy again and stop letting the screamers and the extremists hijack our democracy and our debates, which leads to dysfunction, which in turn erodes faith in democracy and only feeds into the autocrats' claims that democracy is too dysfunctional and disorganized to be an effective form of governance. So let me ask you this. We get a lot of questions. How can you talk to folks who are all in on, say, Trump or the America First movement? My experience has been that you can do it one at a time, but it's sometimes very hard to scale with those who are dyed in the dyed of the wool. But at the same time, you know, it's so easy if you spend too much time on social media, which I probably do, to denigrate those that you viscerally disagree with to the point where they're already resentful. Your actions make them feel more resentful. So how do you fundamentally disagree with someone's worldview? while saying at some point we're going to have to welcome them back to the fold. There's a lot there. And you use the phrase scalable, and I think it's key. You know, in a lot of my, my work on Reality Check at CNN, my book Wingnuts, which came out a decade ago, I look at extremists and extremist groups and cults in America. And there's a reason that the hottest hatred is towards hunting for heretics, people who leave those groups and question their commitment to truth, accuracy, and facts. It's because there's nothing more dangerous to the group cohesion than those heretics. There's no more powerful advocate for a concept of a shared reality and shared facts and a larger commitment to a larger truth than the tribal identity than people who have been through it, who understand it, and have left it. If you study any history of how people leave cults and extremist groups, it is as you say, not by direct confrontation or humiliation, which causes them to double down, but actually through a process of empathy where they start to remember their deepest beliefs 
and lead them to a place where they question for themselves how their cult-like belief structure contradicts those deepest beliefs. That's the path. It is, as you say, not scalable. It really does need to be done one-on-one -on -one in a spirit of empathy. And that empathy is, God knows it has been strained. I feel the strain all the time. We're dealing with people who've doubled down on a big lie in an insurrection. And that's so dangerous. It's easy to say, you know, when you argue with a fool, you got two fools, so why bother? But our democracy and our republic's at stake. And I come back to something that Lincoln said, and it's such like this backwoods wisdom that he's so known for, but it reminds me of my grandfather. He said, it's an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. Sometimes that's vinegar. And so with men, if you would win a friend, a man to your cause, first convince him that you were his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which say what you will is the high road to his reason. On the contrary, Assume to dictate to judgment or to command to his actions or to mark him as one to be shunned and despised, he will retreat within himself and closed all avenues to his head and his heart. I think that's right. And it's just that difficult. It is not scalable, but we need to find a way to reason together again. And we need an off-ramp from this violent polarization. But it's one of the reasons why I think the work that you all do at the Lincoln Project attach such vitriol, because you know, Stewart's great book, It Was All Lie, one of my favorite books the last few years. And he really lays it out. And that is such a threat to the people who are still profiting off this polarization and engaging in all the rationalizations that have come from it. And those are just the people who know better. But it's vitally important to the perpetuation of our democracy. And I think something that we talk about, not to get too nerdy as we wrap up here, is the whole idea of cognitive dissonance, which is what you're talking about get them to find that place where their heart opens up their mind. And I think you're seeing that a little bit in the context of what you see, say, a Tucker Carlson on Fox is doing, which is he clearly now, I believe, and I bet if you did a survey of Fox News viewers, primetime Fox News viewers, John, there's a lot of people probably our parents' age who lived through the Cold War, who may not be any fan of Democrats. They may not be any fan of Joe Biden, but they believe that America is the greatest country in the world and they don't like Russia. They've never seen Russia as the good guy. And so you have this weird dichotomy where Carlson is trying to push the sort of white ethno-nationalist piece of this. And maybe most of the time people are sort of tuned out, but they're like, wait, 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 wait. This is Ukraine. Like, they didn't do anything wrong. And then you see Putin at the end of the ridiculously long table, and you've got Zelensky sitting there as the hero of our time for democracy. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing, which is the reality distortion field has been pierced for a lot of people. And I guess maybe now is an opportunity for us. It is. And I think that's exactly what's happening. The Wolf's Dictionary of trying to sort of twist moral equivalence between Putin and, and all the reasons that people gravitate to the cult of the strong man. You know, the Tuckers of the world and Trump's when their recent praise of Vladimir Putin, which now Tucker is trying to deny and say is such an awful thing for anyone to accuse him of when, you know, it's all on tape there, people. But that's the game they play. But I do think there is an opening because of the clear moral difference between the Putins, the power grabs, the autocrats, and the Ukrainians who are trying to defend democracy, self-determination, and freedom. But, you know, and we see that feedback loop from the isolationists on the far right and the far left and how they try to muddy the waters and the way that disinformation plays and seeding that stuff and artificially amplifying their voices. Yeah. But I do think this is one of those moments where you say, no, democracy matters. Freedom and liberty have a meaning. The international order that came out of winning the peace after the Second World War 
cannot and should not be taken for granted. That was a result of winning the peace. The U.S. and its allies pushing back communism and investing in peace with the Marshall Plan so that there wasn't backsliding. So all those things are just a reminder. We can't take our gains for granted. We do have responsibility and we can't allow people who lie and spread disinformation and misinformation, blurring the lines between truth and lies and democracy and dictatorship to win this debate. It's a cause greater than ourselves. All right. Well, John, listen, this has been incredible. Everybody, the book is Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It is out now. Go get it. It is incredible read. John, before we let you go, do you have a regular slot on CNN? And where can our listeners find you on social media? I'm on every day on CNN's morning show, New Day, with my Reality Check series. Uh, I've got a digital series based on Reality Check as well, and that's on the web, YouTube, and CNN.com. Twitter, I'm at John Avalon, same Instagram. And I appreciate all you're doing and all folks are doing to try to rally together and build this movement to defend democracy. Well, no, John, thank you. Thank you for your writing and thanks for what you do on CNN. Everybody, you can, as always, find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. John, again, thank you. And everybody, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.